Welcome to the Russian Roulette Podcast. My name is Heather Conley. I'm director of the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of Russian Roulette, I sit down with Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the U.S. National Defense Institute and non-resident associate of the CSIS Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program. And I sit down with Tabia Vilke, the founder and CEO of the cybersecurity company Botswatch Technologies. We discuss Jeff's report with friends like these assessing Russian influence in Germany. Okay, let's get started. Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Europe, Russia, and Eurasian program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Today, we are delighted to talk about a new CSIS report that was just released that looks at countering Russian and Chinese influence activities and understanding how democracies can be more resilient to those efforts. But today, we're going to focus on one particular chapter, and that is examining Russian influence in Germany. It's a chapter that was written by Dr. Jeffrey Mankoff, who is the Distinguished Research Fellow at the National Defense University and, of course, the former acting director of the Russia and Eurasia program at CSIS, who's now a non-resident senior associate with CSIS. Jeff wrote the chapter entitled, With Friends Like These, Assessing Russian Influence and Activities in Germany. And joining Dr. Mankoff, we are delighted to welcome Tabia Vilke, who is the founder and CEO of Botswatch Technologies. This is a cybersecurity firm based in Berlin. And Tabia spent uh, her career really at the intersection of technology and the news media. Tapia was also an advisory uh, member uh, to this large project that examined Russian influence in Europe. This project was uh, made possible by the U.S. State Department Global Engagement Center through the Information Access Fund and administered by the DT Institute. Of course, uh, the, the views of this report are from the authors and the researchers and do not represent the views of the U.S. government. So with that intro, we are delighted again, Jeff and Tavia, thank you so much for being with us. Jeff, you were the author for the chapter that examined Russian influence activities in Germany. I'm wondering if I could start with you and you could just offer broad reflections, observations from your study. And again, I really encourage our listeners to check this study out on our website. It's really a comprehensive study. So thank you, Jeff. Great to be with you. What were the highlights of this study? Thanks, Heather, and thanks, everyone, for joining us. Let me just say that my views are mine alone. They don't represent the views of National Defense University, the U.S. Department of Defense, or the United States government. So I guess if I had to list the main takeaways from this project, I would say they are a couple. One, Germany is, in a lot of ways, a unique case, both because the nature of Russian influence there tends to be very much through the establishment rather than against the establishment, even though there is, of course, disruptive malign activity as well, including in the information space that I think Tabia will talk about. Also, that even though Germany has a pretty centrist, well-consolidated political system and media environment, which are important sources of resilience against Russian and other types of malign influence, 
the existence of various communities that are poorly integrated socially, culturally, politically is an important source of vulnerability and one that uh, we've seen on several occasions Russian actors seeking to take advantage of. The two that I really focus on in the report are immigrants from the former Soviet Union, particularly Russian Germans, as well as the citizens of the former East Germany, who in a lot of ways remain even three decades after reunification, somewhat less fully engaged, feel in a lot of ways less of a sense of, of ownership of Germany and of the German political system than their uh, Western counterparts do. At the same time, I think Germany is an important case because of what it teaches about sources of resilience against Russian and indeed other kinds of malign influence. It is a comparatively centrist political system. Trust in institutions, including the media, is comparatively high, certainly compared to countries like the United Kingdom or the United States. And that means that the government has a higher degree of credibility when it seeks to push back, uh, when it seeks to challenge narratives put forward by foreign actors, when it seeks to root out or shine a light on some of these malign influence activities. There's not really the same extent of mistrust, polarization, skepticism about the political establishment that you see in several of the other countries. At the same time, Germany is going through some of the same transformations that have affected other European countries and the United States. There is a influential populist trend, which we've seen in, in the political space with the emergence of the Alternative für Deutschland, the right-wing populist party that has now about 10 to 15 percent support nationwide. And this has been another lever, another uh, hook for Russia to get influence within the German political system. The AfD, Alternative für Deutschland, is very influential among these uh, less well-integrated communities that I discussed, but it also has a wider presence and is very well-represented online, I think is very sophisticated in terms of its online activities and its efforts to spread its message and recruit supporters online. And this is an area where I think the government is still struggling a little bit to try and figure out how to, to respond. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, you know, again, across the case studies that this very fulsome report examined, really that, that social cohesion uh, was such an important issue. The economic influence, um, the diaspora community that you uh, rightly mentioned, and then, of course, that social media space. And that's why I'm so glad we have Tabia with us to help us understand. Tabia, as you have analyzed this, uh, please describe for our listeners the the Russian activity on German social media. What are the trends that you have seen? And, and again, I'd like you to focus, because as Jeff did in his chapter, he really spoke about the 2017 uh, federal election you know, what activity was around. We know that there's an uptick in activity around major events like elections. Another case that Jeff highlighted, which is the very well-known Lisa case in 2016, which is a fictitious story uh, that was created by Russian disinformation around the rape of an, a very young ethnic Russian woman uh, by a, a migrant. Uh, completely false, but it really created a lot of societal tension. I'm just wondering if you could help us frame how the Russian troll, bot activity, disinformation space works in Germany. We're so glad you're with us. Thank you, Heather, and um, thank you for having me today. 
When it comes to foreign interference or foreign activities in Germany, Russia was one of the um, major actors starting back in 2016. That means one year before the federal election started or the campaign started in Germany. And um, I think when you want to characterize how the Russian, Russian strategy is in Germany, there are three important points. One point is they are very bold in their activities. Second, they prefer tactical victory over strategic goals. And third, they scale their resources. So what does it mean? As you already mentioned, the Lisa case, for example, was very bold. It was a um, story made up um, by the Russian government and uh, state-sponsored actors. Um, and this is a good example how disinformation campaigns cross red lines on the target audience moral compass or imagination. That means they cross lines regarding memes, language, or narratives and pictures. And uh, they focus on the most sensitive issues on the target society and its history. For example, rape or rape of minors. And they bring them back to life, they stir them, or they even create them, as it was in this case, for example. So they are very, very bold in uh, what they are doing. And why are they doing this? Because disinformation campaigns are very successful or tend to destabilize individuals as well as, well as peer groups. And ultimately, the target society, by creating emotions such as fear, anger, horror, curiosity, uncertainty, schadenfreude, or superiority of, over minors. And by doing this, they undermine faith in political order and trusted institutions. So this is the more bigger picture why disinformation campaigns can be very successful. The second point, they prefer tactical victory over strategic goals. And this is, for example, a difference to the China approach or the approach China is following. They focus very much on the majority of resources on, on specific events. So they try to activate any instruments they have to focus on specific sources, such as an election or a, a terrorist attack. And they try to put all the resources they have on these events. They have also instruments running on a long-term perspective, but these are definitely not the major instruments or the major focus. So for them to have a tactical victory is sometimes more important than the strategic goals. And the last point is scale the resources. And this is very interesting when we look at the federal elections back uh, in 2017 in Germany. One example is they tried to, to transfer the approaches they did in the US in the 2016 elections, used the same narratives in Germany. One of the narrative was to target people of color, for example. And in Germany back in 2016, this was not a political issue, people of color in Germany. Uh, we had definitely a major is issue about migration, but we had no issue or no discussion or discourse about people of color. This is the reason why this approach 
failed, for example. It was not so successful. It had not that impact like other narratives they tried or other campaigns. So this is a very interesting approach, being very bold, preferred tactical victory over strategic goals and scale out the resources. So this is probably the main characteristic about Russian activity in Germany. Tabby, if I can just stay with you for a moment, I, I sort of want to look backwards in order to look forward. So there have been several um, reports in the German press about a cyber attack on CDU headquarters, uh, the, the Bundestag itself, members of cyber attack uh, way back in 2015, for which now there appears to be some momentum for potential prosecution. So there's been a lot of lessons learned uh, by the German government and these types of cyber attacks on political parties and, and individuals perhaps releasing documents that would be embarrassing to them uh, ahead of, of an election. We have uh, federal elections coming up um, next fall, fall of 2021. Do you sense that the German government are, are doing things differently to prepare for a potential impact of Russian influence activities around the upcoming election? What lessons have the government learned? What issues have they put in place now that will help them be more resistant and resilient to these efforts? This is a very good question. I think there is a kind of sensitivity regarding foreign interference in our elections in general. At the same time, the narrative regarding the 2017 elections is that there has no interference at all, which is when we look at the information space, it's not completely true because there have been activities that try to, for example, push narratives like there's a election fraud and other narrative election observations and so on. So this will be hard for the German government to change the narrative that they say, okay, we have to prepare for, for the 2021 elections next fall. I also think that most of the members of parliament are aware that there is the possibility of foreign interference, but the question is, are they really prepared? And this is something I look at with very much interest. So we will see how this plays out. That is a to-be-continued conversation, for sure. Definitely. <laughs> uh, Jeff, another conversation that is a very hot topic on particularly the U.S.-German uh, bilateral relationship uh, is Nord Stream 2. And I think what we found uh, across the board in this study, whether it was looking at how Chinese economic influence occurs in Australia or attempts in Japan, or looking at Russian influence operations and their economic implications in the United Kingdom, which, my goodness, we are getting a lot of conversation about uh, Russian oligarch and Russian uh, wealth in uh, the city of London and influencing conservative party politics. But you really talked about in your chapter uh, the economic influence and what we call that elite capture. So I'm wondering if you could uh, maybe explain a little bit more sort of the findings on the role of, of Russian economic influence in Germany, this very close relationship between the German business community uh, in Russia historically, and perhaps tease that out a little bit as, you know, there's really a what I call a test of wills between the United States uh, and Germany about the final completion of Nord Stream 2. 
Yeah, this is actually a, an interesting and, and somewhat complicated question, because if you look at the macroeconomic data, Russia's not a particularly important partner for Germany in terms of trade or investment. It's not, you know, one of the top destinations for German foreign investment. It's not one of the top trading partners. But what you have is uh, relationships between some of the very largest, most influential German companies and Russian counterparts. And so there's a stake in that economic relationship on the part of some very influential players within the German political system, which amplifies the importance of, of the economic relationship above its sort of macroeconomic stakes. And of course, you know, we've seen this with things like Nord Stream, where uh, you have some of the big energy companies in particular that have been lobbying very hard to allow the project to go forward and, and ultimately to complete it. And, you know, what we've also seen, and this goes back a long time, is the overlap between the political and the economic, where political actors who have a role to play in moving these projects forward um, often stand to benefit from them personally. Of course, the, the most famous example in Germany is Gerhard Schröder, who signed off on the original Nord Stream project when he was chancellor, and then after leaving office almost immediately went on to become head of the consortium that was, that was building Nord Stream. Now, there are a lot of people, even within Schröder's uh, own party, who think that this is, at the very least, looks bad and don't necessarily endorse it. But I think those kind of personal relationships, that personal cultivation of individuals in power is an important tool. And I think it's one that reflects very much the state of the political system in Russia itself, where political power is often uh, an avenue to wealth and prominence. Uh, and it's a model that Russia likes to use to export, to, uh, to implement in partner countries as well. And when it comes to Nord Stream 2, you know, you mentioned this, this test of wills, uh, if you will, between Germany and the United States. And I think here, you also need to pull the aperture back a little bit and, and think about the larger state of that relationship right now. Because I think what has happened is that as U.S.-German relations have become increasingly tense over a whole host of issues in the last couple of years, Nord Stream 2 has taken on a kind of symbolic importance that maybe goes beyond what its economic or even political consequences would be. That is, uh, I think there are a lot of people in Germany who, under normal circumstances, would not necessarily feel strongly one way or another about the Nord Stream 2 project, who now view it as a test of Germany's sovereignty, who think that the United States is trying to impose itself uh, in German politics in an, in an unwelcome way and is doing so on behalf of its own energy companies. And of course, this is a narrative that Russia pushes as well. But I think it's one that has a lot of purchase in Germany that the reason the United States is opposed to the completion of Nord Stream 2 is because the U.S. wants to sell LNG um, that it itself produces in the German and, and European markets. And so kind of obscuring the geopolitical implications of the project and making it really about, you know, the promotion of U.S. commercial interests. And so I think you have this dynamic where, you know, a lot of people are 
willing to acknowledge that there may be political undertones to Russia's interest in completing Nord Stream 2, but also see political undertones in the opposition of the United States. Uh, and so it really becomes a question of, if you're in Germany, how do you position yourself between these contending political forces and what ultimately makes uh, the most sense and how do you balance it is indeed a very complicated story that I fear is only going to get more complicated for exactly those reasons. A question to you both, but I'm going to first turn to Tabia. So I think one of the strengths that came out of the German case study was that there was great societal cohesion uh, in G Germany. Germany very much values consensus-driven decision-making uh, and stability. That in some ways, and that, that's been the benefit to Germany, it's been able to, able to be more resistant and resilient to Russian influence activities. But at the same time, particularly in the German media space, I think this may be actually a factor that's, that's not uh, as encouraging. What we found is that the role of investigative journalism exposing Russian influence activities is really a, a key, as well as Chinese influence activities, is really key to bringing greater awareness. And many times governments don't want some of this information to be understood. Sometimes it just demonstrates a, it embarrasses them because they haven't been ahead of it or perhaps they were aware of it and weren't taking more decisive steps because of political influence. So, Tabia, let me start with you, we find, at least this is my observation as a German analyst, that the German media is a little slow to highlight things that are uncomfortable for the government because of that consensus-driven model and media model. Do you see some shifts changing in the German media space, perhaps online investigative journalism? Is it breaking through some of that consensus? While consensus is very good, uh, sometimes you need a little bit more investigative pushing to perhaps push governments where they don't wish to go? This is a very, very, very good question and probably not easy to answer as well. We have in Germany, we are very lucky to have a very active investigate community of investigate journalists and investigate networks who focus on different scams or scandals or things going on that do not in line with our constitution or our, our system, our dem democracy. When it comes to foreign interference, this is probably another issue because foreign interference to measure is a very complicated thing. It's, it's, it's very challenging. You have the attribution is hard to do, especially from, um, from a technical point of view. At the same time, when we look at next year, or even this year in the US, when you compare even the number of actors that are active in this space, in this area, the number is very, very high compared to 2016 and 2017. So you have multiple actors playing in this field. And for even for very specialized people, it's hard to distinguish between false flag operations um, these operations are activities or campaigns in the information environment that try to mimic some actors. For example, they mimic the tactics of the Russian government or the tactics of the Chinese or another government. And the number of actors, the false flag operations, and the complexity of the information space, 
these three factors are very, very um, important when it comes to analyze what is the state, where are we right now uh, with foreign interference. So in general, I, I would totally agree and support what you said that uh, we need a resilient public. And I always say that a resilient public is an informed public. So the moment the public knows something is going on, there is an information operation, there is an information campaign, people can can identify the narratives or the pictures or the memes and they can stop spreading them. And this is very important when it comes to how to um, to respond to information operations. I think the um, the better a public is informed, the more resilient is the public. And when it comes to trust in, in media, this is totally true, as um, uh, like Jeff said before, Germany has now around 45% um, trust in media overall. This is a number of the digital news report from the Reuters Institute. And this is very, very high compared to the US, where it is 29%, or the UK, 28%. But we, when we look at where we come from in Germany, we started with 60% in 2015. And this is like five years ago, just a few years between uh, 2015 and 2020. And it dropped from 60% to 45%. But on the trust on the media, there's an interesting finding. Although there's low trust, Reuters Digital News Report found that lower trust does not necessarily mean lower usage. They found out, for example, in the US that strongly distrusted news brands Fox and CNN are also the most viewed on television. So this is also an interesting thing worth mentioning. At the same time, when we look at how are people um, accessing news? Then we can see a shift to uh, social media and especially on messaging apps to reach people who use messengers. Um, it's quite harder than when to reach people in, in open platforms. So this is definitely a challenge for all democracy, for all open societies as well. Tavia, that, I mean, that's a startling figure to say from 60% to 45% in trust and the fragmentation of where Germans are getting their news, in addition to, I'm sure, influence activities is driving that. That is a fascinating statistic uh, and, and a very worrisome trend for sure. Jeff, I want to leave the last question to you, if, if I may. Um, and I just want to pull back a little bit um, because uh, we are now entering uh, the transition to the post-Angela Merkel era um, when Germans uh, go to the polls next fall. And Angela Merkel, an incredible student of the Russian language, and certainly of Vladimir Putin, whom she spent an enormous amount of time uh, dealing with a whole range of issues. I'm, I'm sort of thinking ahead and thinking about the post-Merkel era and what German-Russian relations could be in the future. And I just want you to sort of take us through some concluding thoughts of the future of this relationship, knowing how important Germany is to Europe, uh, the, the very intense uh, bilateral relationship, any predictions or thoughts of the German-Russian relationship in the post-Merkel era? 
Oh, gosh. You know, I forget who it was who said predicting is hard, especially the future. But let me take a stab at this. I think Merkel has been an enormously important pillar of stability, not only in Germany, but for Europe as a whole, during what's been a, a fairly trying time over the last decade plus. I don't think that any replacement, regardless of which party that person comes from, uh, even though it seems most likely it'll also be from the CDU, is going to have the same stature that Merkel has uh, internationally uh, in Europe, in transatlantic relations, and in relations with Moscow. At the same time, I think, you know, Heather, you're right, Merkel's own perception of Russia is distinct. Uh, a lot of it has to do with her own biography, which is also unlikely to be repeated by her successor. And because there is this wider interest in having at least workable relations with Russia um, that does go through a lot of the German political establishment, I think if you don't have a leader like Merkel, who is both considered effective, is widely respected, and also has a relatively dismal view of, of Russia and, and of Putin, I think it's likely that you're going to see a post-2021 Germany that does begin to move back in a, towards a more normalized relationship with Russia. I think the other big question in all of this, of course, is what happens in the United States, because a lot of this is also about the transatlantic relationship. It's about NATO. It's about how much trust there is between Berlin and Washington. And I don't think it's a secret to any of our listeners that that relationship has been in a bad way for quite some time. And if it remains in a bad way, then I think not only in Germany, but across a lot of Europe, there is going to be more of a desire, not only among the populist fringe, but among more kind of mainstream parties as well to at least cover their eastern flank, you know, not uh, allow themselves to get too far out on a limb in terms of, of picking fights with Moscow if they don't think that they can count on the United States having their back. Well, uh, more to come in that conversation as well. But let me begin uh, and end by thanking Tavia Vilke, founder and CEO of Botswatch Technologies, from joining us from Berlin. And let me also thank Dr. Jeff Mankoff, Distinguished Research Fellow at the National Defense University and author of With Friends Like These, Assessing Russian Influence Activities in Germany, a new chapter uh, in a brand new report that looks at countering Russian and Chinese influence in Europe and in Asia. Thank you both so much. What a great conversation. We hope you'll join us again for the next podcast for Russian Roulette. Have a great day. That's it for our show today. We'll provide a link to all the guest bios and Jeff's report in the show notes. You can follow Jeff on Twitter at Dr. J. Mankoff and Tabia at Tab Vilke. For those of you who haven't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes and or leaving us a rating and review. If you're not an iTunes user, check out the podcast and subscribe via Google Play or on SoundCloud. And again, Keep spreading the word about Russian roulette. Follow the program on Twitter at CSIS Russia and at CSIS Europe.
Finally, I'd like to take the time to thank everyone who works so hard to make this podcast happen, including our producer, research associate, and program manager, Roxana Gabadulina, and the entire CSIS External Relations and iLab team. Stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening. <laughs>